Welcome, adventurers. Dangling like a spider from a thread, Karya peers into the shrine of Skellish Half-Handed for the first time. What does she see? Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Four Ukwala stood in the mouth of the cave some twenty feet below. They looked out at the bonfire, shifting occasionally from foot to foot. They did not, however, look up. After years as a thief, Karya knew this was the nature of most creatures. To look for what was before you, but rarely above. Getting up here was extremely difficult, and so it was the last place they would expect someone to be. Hanging in the inverted position, Karya looked past the jagged stone teeth and into the shrine. A tunnel the same size and shape as the cave entrance went seventy feet into the mountainside. The tunnel was lined with torches, and in the flickering light, Karya could see the walls of the tunnel were covered in an immense and detailed mosaic depicting scenes of battle. The exploits of Skellish half-handed, no doubt. The tunnel ended in a plain stone wall. In the wall, a large arched double door, eight feet at its peak, made of wood and banded with metal. The door stood open, and to each side, the two remaining Ukwala. Beyond the doors, a torch-lit chamber was visible. And there, framed by the view through the door, was a pedestal of sorts. It was difficult to tell from this distance, but it appeared a sculpture of some sort. A depiction of bodies? It was not clear. What was clear, however, was atop the pedestal sat an object of dark metal. The urn of Skellish half-handed. Karya took one last look, committing every detail, seemingly important or not, to mind. This would be the only look she got before tomorrow night and the actual removal of the urn. Satisfied she had seen all she could, she slowly worked the rope with her hands again, pulling her body back into a sitting position. Catching her breath, she stood again, scaled the wall above, and removed the rope. There would be no need for it tomorrow. Karya made her way back to Fion, and then both of them back to their ledge. Koi stood at the ready, bow in hand, but not drawn as they returned. She nodded to Karya. Fine piece of work. Karya nodded a wordless thank you in reply, and then, when they were all safely inside the blind, they sat. She looked to each of them and said, I have formed a plan. She then laid it out, explaining each of their roles and what they were to do. After that, she explained what each was to do in any number of alternate situations. As she finished, Sol struck the tarp at their backs. They sipped some water and lay down to rest. Karya's body was flushed with anticipation. She lived for the thrill of her work, and tomorrow would be the crowning jewel in her already illustrious career. Despite the rising heat and the solid rock on which they lay, for the first time since leaving Ardisport, Karya slept soundly through the day. The light of the gloaming hour turned from Sol's piercing white 
to Arjun's muted silver. Koi, Fion, and Karya had all been up for a bell's time. Behind the cramped shelter, each made their own preparations for the night to come. Koi was meticulously inspecting each arrow in her quiver and placing them back in some specific order based on what she found. Fion said he needed to pray and had sat back against the cliff face. What followed looked much more like someone too deep in their cups. Fion muttered and cursed, occasionally pausing, as if to listen to a voice that was not there. The halfling's hands gestured and moved in expressive ways throughout the odd, one-sided conversation, eyes often rolling after a silence. After one such silence, he grasped his head in both hands and quite clearly said, You must be kidding. But apparently the unheard voice was not, as he threw up his hands in exasperation and went right back into his one-sided mutterings. Karya herself sorted the very limited amount of items she would bring with her. Two potions, two daggers, a cloth pack made of dark material, much smaller than her traveling pack, a place to put the urn once it had been retrieved. After this, she had sat cross-legged and closed her eyes. Karya then visualized the route to the urn and back, over and over again in her mind. Each time she did this, she changed some small detail and adjusted her imagined approach to solve for it. By the time a bell had passed, Karya had made the run in her mind fifty times or more, each time different, some extremely difficult, but ultimately all were successful. She did this for every job she had ever done. After this period of preparation came the waiting. Karya insisted six bells passed, six changes of the shift. She explained that the point was to reinforce in the guards' minds that this was just another night, no different than any other. They each took turns watching the mouth of the cave, ensuring nothing out of the ordinary occurred. Nothing did. Finally, in the dead of night, five bars after the shift change, Karya looked to Fion and Koi and nodded. There was no hesitation. Koi laid two extra bundles of arrows on the ground and strung her bow. Fion laid his hand on both Koi and Karya and turned muttering while holding his medallion, a blessing of some sort, then looked up and winked. He did not turn into his cat this time, but passed quietly out of the shelter and disappeared around the corner. Karya watched the guards for a bar. No reaction. She followed. They stopped together at the path they found during last night's scouting that led down to the cave entrance. Karya kneeled, looking into Fion's eyes. Fion mouthed the words, Mad Woman, winked, and then plucked an eyelash from his face, rolled it into a sap or some such whispered a few quick words over the newly formed ball, and vanished. Karya stared hard at the path. The faintest impression of footfalls could be seen. Resourceful that one was. Karya stood, moving on to the second path. Having tread the path last night twice, and in her mind many times over, she progressed with great efficiency, and a trip which had taken most of a bell the night before was completed in just under ten bars. Stopping just before the small crease that led to the top of the arch, she unstoppered a potion and quaffed the milky white liquid, the lucky find an artist port. The empty vial was replaced in a padded pouch, and then she stepped noiselessly across the narrow span to the top of the arch. Karya stopped again, back to the mountain, looking out over the bonfire to where the top of the stone stairs met the ledge. She didn't have to wait long. The call of an owl sounded faint 
and far away, Karya began counting. Two beats. The owl called again. Eight beats. The owl called one last time. Fion was in position. If she had not tested the potion's effects out in Artisport, what came next would have taken some serious faith and resolve. Karya folded her cloak behind her and then tied it around her waist so it would not billow or hang. She then leaned forward, forward well past the point in which she should have tumbled off the ledge, but her feet stuck firmly to the stone on which she stood. Four guards, just as the night before, and the night before that. They stood, mostly unmoving, shifting or stretching out arms occasionally. Good signs that they were not on high alert. Karia then bent at the waist, curling around the top of the arch, placing a hand on the ceiling of the tunnel within. Her hand stuck to the tiled roof. She brought a leg around slowly, and then the other. Kari was now just inside the cavern, stuck to the roof like a spider. She worked arms and legs, moving one at a time, ever so slowly. The torchlit cave was her ally. The light flickered and danced on the walls. It also created an area of shifting and moving shadow on the ceiling in which she clung. With measured movement at first, she crawled ten paces and then paused. She observed the two Ukwala at the end of the hall. No indication that they had seen her entrance. Rolling her head, she looked back over her shoulder. The four at the mouth of the cave also seemed unaware. Turning her head back, she watched the erratic pattern of shadow on the ceiling ahead. After a bar, she began to move. A pace of movement, a half a bar to watch and wait. A little over ten bars later, she had reached the halfway point. Here, Karya paused. It shouldn't be long until. And then from behind, the clatter of rock and a terrible screech. She heard the guards at the mouth of the cave call out in alarm. Then one turned, shouting back to the two ahead that stood by the inner door. Karya held her breath. Would it be the easy way or the hard? Even before she finished the thought, the two guards in the inner door broke into a run toward her. She turned her head toward the roof. The guards pounded up the tunnel, then directly below her, then passed to the mouth of the cave. As soon as she heard this, Kari wasted no time. She moved her arms and legs in rapid succession, a dark lizard skittering along in defiance of gravity. She made the rear wall and quickly transitioned to that surface, head now pointing down toward the ground. She looked up and out toward the arch. Two guards stood there, and four others fanned out to investigate the noise. None looked this way. She slithered down the wall to the top of the door, grabbed the threshold, and swung down, hanging for a moment, looking one last time at the entrance before pumping her legs to swing up, spinning, hands changing grip to face the inner chamber, and then the momentum carried her through the door, arms pulling, legs shooting up to cling to the inner wall. Feet now secure, she flexed her stomach, pulling her torso up and through the door as well. Reaching out a hand, she came to an improbable stop on the wall, a three-point stance parallel to the floor. Taking a moment to allow herself to orient, she listened. No footsteps. She couldn't count on having much more than twenty or thirty beats. She took in the room. It was a dome carved into the mountain, centered over the pedestal on which the urn sat. The walls were also covered in mosaic, but instead of scenes of battle, they depicted raging flames. Above the flames, gray and black smoke billowing to the roof. Dead center, at the top of the dome, directly above the pedestal, 
was an Ukwala face, but no ordinary face. This one was pale white, not the normal green hues. And the eye, the one good eye, was a burning blue light instead of the sparkling agate black. There was a scar that ran vertically down the face, starting above the brow, running through the left eye socket, and down onto the cheek. This was not the depiction of a living Ukwala, but of Ukval, the cold and savage Ukwala god. Karia's mind flitted back to Esmeray's tower. It has become a shrine of sorts. Ukwala warriors and chiefs visit it and pay tribute, asking the spirit of Skellish to guide them. Though I don't know how well Ukval takes to this. <laughs> well, it appeared Ukval was not only okay with Skellish's shrine, but watched over it. Her eyes turned to the floor. It appeared solid stone. From this vantage point, she could see no cracks or discoloration that might indicate pressure plates. The pedestal, if you could call it that, was a bulky sculpture that rose out of the floor. At its base were carved stone flames. Rising out of the flames, scrambling, crawling, and clawing over and on top of one another to escape the burning, climbed elves and dwarves, their faces trapped forever in expressions of fear and agony. The sculpture was wide at its base of flames, and then narrowed as it rose through the writhing mass. At the top, a jumble of arms rose from the sculpture, reaching upward. The arms held a disc of black marble. Atop that disc lie the urn. The urn itself was made of dark metal that distorted light more than reflected it. Hammered into its surface in relief were more faces trapped in anguish. In the torchlight, it seemed as if the faces moved and twisted. Looking at it for more than a moment made Karia's skin crawl. Karia has won her way to her prize. All that remains is to take it unseen. But what hazards remain to contend with? Join me next week for the exciting conclusion of Into the Fire.